Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Well, good morning, City of Refuge. I'd like to begin by praying together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that song is our testimony. We once were lost, but now are found. We were blind, but now we see. And we know that that is because of your grace. And we give you the honor and the glory. I pray now that as we turn to your word that you will give us hearts that are open and ready to receive what you would have for us. Pray that you would make our hearts good soil. That it would produce a crop of righteousness, good works, and worship of you. All these things I pray in your name. Amen. So we are beginning this week our new series, Praying Like Jesus. So we have been looking for the last several weeks of what it looks like for us to hunger and thirst for God. And we begin now what is going to be an extended look at some of the things that we as a church are supposed to be devoted to. So you may remember back uh, several weeks ago, we looked at Acts 2 and the early church and that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Prayer being one of the things that this, the early church did with, with regularity and devotion. And so we are going to begin looking at prayer over the next six to eight weeks. Now, I don't want us to forget what has come before. We're not moving on from hungering and thirsting for God. This is part of how we do that. When we hunger and thirst for God, one of the ways that we respond is by praying to him. And the way we're going to approach prayer is we are going to look at the prayer life of Jesus. How did Jesus pray? You know, I was thinking about um, a, a picture of, of prayer and and. This is one aspect of it that came to mind. I don't know if, uh, how many of you remember this from your lower school, but do you remember when you learned about simple machines? So simple machines are things like levers and pulleys and wedges. They are these very simple devices that do something to cause force to go in a different direction or to magnify the amount of force. To, it, it gives you some sort of magnification of your action. Uh, I remember my dad, uh, I had my dad as my teacher from, I guess, fifth through seventh grade for all subjects, if you can believe that. It was actually a really good experience. Uh, but I remember one of the things that he taught me, he taught me about levers, and he told me about this, this Greek mathematician named Archimedes. And, and he said that, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum in the right place, and I will move the world. Right? There is this idea that you could, as a person, if you had the right lever, even move something as large as the world. And I was thinking about, to a certain extent, prayer is somewhat like this, in the sense that it is something very simple that we do. Anyone can pray. A child can pray. There is something uncomplicated about talking to God, and yet it is something that can be very powerful 
in our lives, not because somehow we are moving God through prayer, but because through prayer we are coming, as we're going to see in the text today, to participate in what God is doing and aligning ourselves to what God is doing in the world. So we are going to be looking at this this thing called prayer, and in some ways we are going to be looking at some more simple aspects of it. Simple, at least, in the doing. Now, if you were to think back on history and think, okay, if there is one person in the world who I would want to teach me how to pray, who would that person be? All right, this is one of those cases where it really is the church answer, right? It's either Jesus or Moses, and it's Jesus this time, right? Imagine if there was some place in the scripture where Jesus himself said, this is how you should pray. Well, it just so happens that there is. It shows up in two places. In Luke 11, Jesus' disciples come to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray. And then in Matthew 6, during the Sermon on the Mount, there's this whole section where Jesus is teaching his disciples, this is how you should pray. So that is where we're going to start when thinking about what does it mean for us to have, be devoted to prayer, for us to have an active prayer life. I want to start with, what did Jesus say when they came to him and said, how do we pray? So we're going to be in Matthew 6. And we're going to read verses 5 through 15. So we're going to be reading this section out of the Sermon on the Mount. So Sermon on the Mount is this time where there's, Jesus has this extended time of teaching on a number of subjects. But the context is that his disciples have come to him. And it is kind of up on this hillside, which is quiet. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. But there's also the crowds around him. And he has taught them about um, different aspects of sin and what their, uh, their life should look like. And you have the Beatitudes But here in 6, starting in verse 5, he is going to address what does it look like for them to pray. So let's read this together. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Jesus begins this section on prayer by comparing how his disciples should pray compared to two groups. There's the hypocrites and the Gentiles. So he starts out talking about the hypocrites. And he says in verse 5, you must not be like the hypocrites. 
Why? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So what characterizes a hypocrite prayer is that they are seeking the approval of others. Right? And in Jesus' day, this looked like finding the most public place you could and praying. That could be the street corner or the synagogue, the church of their day. They looked for the most public place and they would try and pray very elaborate prayers that, so that people would look in and see and think that these people are righteous, these people are good, these people have favor with God. Look at the way they pray. And Jesus says they are hypocrites. And this is actually a group that he talks about a lot in his teaching. Right? The hypocrites were the religious leaders of his day who had lost sight of what real righteousness, what real love of God looked like, and instead were concerned with how they looked externally and not what was going on internally. And Jesus says you should not be like them. Instead... Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So he tells them that if you go and pray with the intention of getting the attention of others, that is the only reward you're going to get. If you pray because you want people to see you and like you and think that you're great, that is the only reward you should expect. But he goes on to say... But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So he says, instead of praying in these ways that are trying to draw the attention of others, instead find a secret place and your father who is in secret will see you. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, there is an aspect of God that is hidden. Right? We don't see him. There is a secretness to him, not that he isn't there, but that we just don't see him. And so there's a sense where, okay, he's not seeing, or he is seeing, but he is not seen. And in the same way, we are supposed to go and be in secret so that he in secret will see us. And he says, if you do that, then the father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, what is that reward that he's talking about there? And I think it's parallel to what came before, right? He said that if you want the attention of others, if that's the reward you seek, then that's what you'll get. If you want the attention of the Father, that is the reward you will get. We have a choice about whose attention we're seeking when we pray. We either are praying for the attention of others or we are praying for the attention of the Father. And so Jesus says that our prayer should be in secret. Now, I don't think here that Jesus is forbidding all forms of public prayer. Because you do see times when Jesus prayed in front of other people. You see it in John 17, where he prays before his disciples. You see it elsewhere in Scripture. For instance, Paul writes prayers to the churches that were supposed to be read out loud. There was times when public prayer was right and appropriate... So the issue here is the issue of the heart. What is the intention that we have when we pray? And are we seeking the attention of others or are we seeking the attention of God? Now, I will say that I think that there is an aspect of this that is just practically true, that a majority of our prayer life should be in secret. A majority of our prayer life should not be done with the attention of others, but purely seeking the Father. But there may be times when public prayer is appropriate. But I will say, as someone who has to pray publicly quite a bit, 
this is a, this is a, uh, a challenging verse. It makes me think when I'm praying publicly, I got to watch my heart. But because, boy, there is a tendency when I pray to want to be, well, I hope people thought that was a good prayer. <laughs> right? Particularly, I will say, now as a pastor, like, boy, I hope they think I'm a good pastor, man, because, like, there's this pressure now. But what, what, yeah, what Jesus says is, don't worry about it. You are not praying for them. You are praying to the Father. Amen. So this is his first thing that he teaches the disciples. Do it in secret because you are wanting the attention of the Father, not the attention of others. He goes on, and now he's compared to the hypocrites, and now he compares how we should pray to the Gentiles. He says in verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So he's now comparing to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and evidently what was characteristic in his day of the Gentile prayers is he would do what is translated as heaping up empty phrases. Now, this is actually an interesting place where there's some debate about what exactly this means, empty phrases. It is a, a Greek word, batalageo, that is not used very much. It's the only time it shows up in the New Testament, and it is, doesn't show up much in other literature. So we don't have a lot to go on about exactly what this means. So it could be that they were heaping up just kind of babbling or it could be that they were just repeating the same thing over and over and over again. Whichever one it was, though, what Jesus says is what they were trying to accomplish with that is that they think that they will be heard for their many words. So they think that by saying something over and over and over, by saying these really long, elaborate prayers, that somehow this is going to be what gets God's attention. And Jesus says... Verse 8, do not be like them. Why? For your father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus says, you do not be, need to be doing these long, elaborate prayers, heaping up a bunch of prayers on how to get God's attention. We should not pray like that because we know something about the God we're praying to. We know something about the Father, right? We know that the Father is the almighty, powerful creator of the universe who knows all and sees all, right? He is not waiting around somehow for us to tell him what we need. He knows that already. In fact, he knows what we need way better than we know what we need. Right? So what Jesus is saying here is like, if you know that about the Father, don't think that you somehow have to heap up a bunch of stuff to get his attention, he already knows what he needs because he is the good creator, God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing. Now, this does raise a little bit of an interesting question, though, which is, why then do we pray? Right? If God already knows, then why are we telling him what he already knows? This will be a question we return to, I think, in a number of the, the, the future sermons. But I want to just look at specifically what Jesus is saying here. So I'm staying within Matthew 6. Because here, Jesus doesn't really answer that question too much beyond the call to be obedient in prayer. 
right? What he is teaching us to do here is to pray in obedience to the Father in the way the Father desires about the things that the Father wills. And this, I think, is at the core of what prayer is. Now, we can explore other things later on about what may be some of the things that are taking place here with regards to our relationship with God, all of that that may be part of prayer. But here in Matthew 6, what I think Jesus is teaching them is he's teaching them to pray in obedience to the Father in the way the Father desires about the things that the Father wills. And if you want a place to start in terms of your prayer life, this is it. Begin just by praying obediently, even if there's part of you that doesn't totally understand the why. Now, after he has made these two comparisons of the don'ts, right? Don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the Gentiles. Then he says, pray then like this. And he gives them what we have come to know as the Lord's Prayer. And this is something that I'm guessing most of you have prayed many, many times, probably mostly in a public context where we're saying this together, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here, kind of the, the last part of what I was saying earlier, what does Jesus teach us to pray for? And I see seven things in this that he tells us to pray for, and I want to run through them fairly quickly. But the first thing is, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That, that hallowed, that's not a word we use a lot. I mean, I don't know how much you use hallowed in your work life, but it means, it means holy. It means set apart. This is a declaration of the holiness of God. I mean, think of like Old Testament where, you know, the, the glory of God comes down into the tabernacle. Or think of uh, when they're um, at the mountain and you see just the holiness, the set apartness of God. That's what they're talking about here. They're talking about the, the might and the, the holiness, the set apartness, him being different from us because he is our God. And it starts here. It starts with a declaration of recognizing who we're praying to. That goes back to something we saw earlier about where he says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This is tied to that. We know we serve the holy God and that is who we are talking to when we pray. And I think that affects our disposition when we go in to pray to the father that yes, he is our father and there's something close and intimate and lovely about that. And he also is the most holy God. You know, this is something that I'm trying to work on teaching my boys about, right? Sometimes when we, we come to that time of prayer, there's not that sense of the awe and wonder and reverence for God there. And I think that's why this starts there, is this, this is recognizing who the Father is. Then he prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So two things, praying for God's kingdom to come and praying for God's will to be done. So what is God's kingdom? This is something that Jesus teaches about throughout Matthew, but fundamentally the kingdom of God is about where God's rule and reign is manifested in his people 
in the place that he designates. It is about God's rule and reign coming to completion. Now, we know we serve a God who is completely sovereign, who is completely powerful. And so there is a sense in which all things coming together, his will is going to be done. So there's not a sense where we are causing God's will to happen by praying for it. But right now, we live in a world where people attempt to thwart God's will and where his rule and reign are contested by our enemy. And ultimately, although we know there's nothing outside God's providence and control, by praying God's will to be done and his kingdom to come, we're praying that more and more the earth would look like heaven, where there is a willing submission to what God wills to be done and a willing desire to see the things that he longs for and his character lived out in the midst of our church, our families, our workplaces, our neighborhoods. That's what, when we pray God's will to be done, that's what we're praying for. When we pray for his kingdom to come, that's what we are praying for. And I think there's an aspect of this that in part is about aligning ourselves May I long for your will to be done and your kingdom to come. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I have trouble praying this with integrity. Right? Where I'm in a particular situation, and when I pray, your kingdom come and your will be done, I feel that little twinge in my heart that goes, uh, but I kind of want my will to be done and my kingdom to come a little bit more right now. So I think this is also a prayer that sometimes leads us to a place of repentance where we recognize, you know what, there is a part of me that is still not in alignment with God's kingdom coming and God's will being done. Next, he says, give us this day our daily bread. This is beautiful imagery coming out of the time when Israel was in the desert and they were hungry and they cried out to God. They more complained to God, but they cried out to God And God gave them manna, the daily bread. Every day they would wake up and there would be enough provision for the day. Just that day. But it was enough. And then they trusted that the next day that God's provision was again be enough. This is praying that God's provision would be enough. It would be enough for us. It would be enough for our families. It would be enough for our church. It would be enough Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Next, he tells us to pray for forgiveness. Knowing that we have sin in our life, knowing that there is still part of us that is in rebellion against God's will being done and God's kingdom coming, and that we desperately need the forgiveness that Jesus was there ultimately to bring. And I find it interesting that here, this is the only prayer that is tied to something specific that we are supposed to do. It says, give us the stay our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And he reemphasizes this again in 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespassers, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So there's 
two parts to this. There is praying for the forgiveness of God, but there's also here the call that as we are receiving so much grace and so much mercy and so much forgiveness, that we are then turning and extending that grace and forgiveness to those around us. I think of the story where where Jesus talks about the servant who comes to the king massively in debt and the king forgives him. And then that servant goes out and he finds a fellow servant who just owes him a little but can't pay him back and he abuses that second servant and forces him to pay, does not offer the same forgiveness. And that is the picture that is in view is here. Like when we don't forgive others, what we have lost sight of is how much we have been forgiven. And so there is a call here we, to be able to pray both sides of this with integrity, both praying, Lord, forgive me, as we also have forgiven others. Can we pray both sides of that? Last, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus says elsewhere that trials are going to come. Temptations are going to come. We saw uh, in the sermon about Jesus' time in the desert where Jesus is confronted by by our enemy. There is forces working against us in the world. And here, Jesus says that we should pray to be delivered from our temptations, to be delivered from evil. Prayers for protection. Prayers that God would see us through those times of temptation and trial. Now, there's a question here about these seven things. So is this an example of the kind of prayer we're supposed to pray, or are we supposed to pray these specific things? And I think the answer is yes. Because I do think that this serves to a certain extent as an example of the kinds of things that we can pray. And I also think it's actually a little bit of an example of the succinctness that Jesus is talking about, right? You see Jesus, there's not a lot of repetition of, heaping up empty phrases that's happening in this prayer. It's very straightforward. It's simple. It's to the point, talking to the Father. But I also think that there is something important about praying these things that Jesus commanded us to pray and making them a regular part of our prayer life. I want to imagine just a second what it would look like for us to begin to pray these things. Imagine if we started our days praying, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. If we started our days just by acknowledging the God that we serve and his holiness and his power and his goodness. What if we prayed in our families regularly when we have some issue with parenting or we're having a conflict with our spouse or something's come up with the in-laws. What if we prayed, your kingdom come and your will be done? What if at work, in the midst of our labor, in the midst of trying to walk through something that we have no idea what to do with, what if we just prayed, your kingdom come your will be done, maybe even in situations where we don't even know what that looks like, but God does. 
what if we went into our neighborhoods and prayed for our neighborhoods that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done as John did earlier today? What if whenever we encountered a need, any kind of need, we prayed, Father, give us this day our daily bread. What if we prayed that and trusted it completely and just trusted that God would provide for what we needed in that day and then trusted that the next day we could pray, give us this day our daily bread and again find that complete provision of the Father. What if we regularly brought our sin to God and asked for forgiveness and also were regularly forgiving all those around us for the things done against us? What if we prayed when we're facing temptation, Lord, deliver me from temptation and deliver me from the power of the evil one, trusting that God would do that completely? Imagine if we could do that with complete trust that the Father is going to meet these needs. Think how much anxiety and fear and bitterness and and anger that we would be able to avoid if we just prayed these things with complete trust in the Father. Think about the ways that we might see God show up in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our relationships, in our workplaces, when we get to start seeing what it looks like when God's kingdom come and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. I think there is something to just taking these very simple things and praying them when we encounter the things of life. Because this is what Jesus said is how we should pray. That's not to say that there aren't other things that we can and should pray for, but boy, this is a great place to start. So I want to ask you to try something this week. Call it a prayer challenge, or if that's a little bit too, you know, fitness world for you, call it a, a prayer encouragement. As things arise in your life this week, I want you to pray the things of the Lord's Prayer in response to those. Praying them as much as you can with faith and trust in the Father. And I want to be clear what this challenge is about because this is not a test of whether God is going to show up. Right? We, we, we studied that last week, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. Right? We're not doing that. This isn't about whether God will show up. He will because he's the Father. This is about us learning to obediently pray to the Father in the ways that he has taught us to pray about the things that he has asked us to pray. And so I want to invite you in the coming week to respond to the things of life in obedient prayer, praying about the things that the Father has told us he wills to pray. Amen? Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. 
We pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you give us this day our daily bread, that you forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.